I just want to do big things. I feel like life is finite. You're only as good as your last show or your last deal. LA is wild and we all have a story. One of the things that I understood from the get-go was that the hustle mentality in Los Angeles was a very big deal. You have to put in the blood, sweat, and tears to make it your own and yourself. This is a show that explores the many angles it takes to navigate LA's most exciting industries. I'm Summer Brighton, and this is The City of Angles. Ready and now. Welcome to episode one of a podcast that's dedicated to telling the stories of the many, many movers and shakers that make this amazing and wild city go around. I'm a realtor and a creator. I sell cool homes to cool people, and I get to work on different creative projects. And all of that puts me in the mix of many of LA's most exciting industries, entertainment, real estate, tech, and beyond. One of my main purposes of creating this show was to build community. It's really easy to feel alone in a city of mostly transplants when everybody is on their hustle constantly. But we all share common goals and that we want to make the best of our lives, the best of our talents, the best of this time and place and this wild city where literally anything can happen. So without further ado, I would love to introduce my first guest, which is Courtney Polis, who has been an absolute inspiration for me the last little while. So I'm happy to have her as guest number one. Courtney, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Courtney Polis. I'm the broker owner of Acme Real Estate. We're LA's sexiest little boutique brokerage, specializing in selling designer homes on a good budget all across the city. And um, yeah, I've been here in LA for 21 years. Give us a little bit of a snapshot of what life was like when you first got to LA. Oh my God. So I got to L.A. in 1997. I was sent here on a press junket for the Beavis and Butthead movie. I was working three jobs in Washington, D.C., and I was the editor for a magazine called the University Reporter Magazine. And it was my first time traveling to Los Angeles. And when I got here, it was November of 96, and it was like 80 degrees in November. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, I didn't know this even existed. It was perfect, and the people were so beautiful. I couldn't believe it. And Melrose Place was still on TV at that time, so of course I had to go down Melrose Avenue, which I now know is not the best place for fashion, but at the time seemed like eons ahead of what we had in D.C. So I was just enamored with the entire city, and um, I quickly packed up my stuff, left college, and moved to L.A. to become an actor. So what, talk a little bit about like mis misconceptions that you maybe had, like expectations versus reality of getting here and actually having boots on the ground. Well, I realized quickly when I got to L.A. that people were kind of weird. Um, I met a lot of caricatures. I was like, whoa, that person is Popeye, I think. Like they look like Popeye and sound like Popeye and dress like Popeye. Or, you know, at the time, what was really big was, like, the derby in swing dancing. And there were all these, like, greasers and these chicks that looked like pinup dolls. And I was like, oh, my God, they really look like pinup dolls. And they live that life. They have the old car. And 
you know, everything about them fit into that lifestyle. So it was shocking to be in a place where people actually transformed themselves into who they felt like they were or are. And that was huge. I also realized, you know, a few typical things like when somebody says, I'll call you tomorrow, it doesn't really mean they're going to call you tomorrow. And even though at the time people would say like people in L.A. are so shallow and superficial, I actually found that kind of honesty in us all understanding that call you tomorrow doesn't really mean call you tomorrow. It means I'll call you when I want to talk to you or can talk to you. Um, I found that to be more honest than the w- where I was living at the time. And on the East Coast, you know, you have to abide by your word or you get crap from everybody. So just having a little freedom and flexibility there actually saying, hey, you know, I know I said I was going to go out, but I'm not really feeling like going out and having that not be a deal breaker with your friends was a big freedom. At the time, rock and roll was huge, and I was in acting school with people who knew people, and I went to a lot of bizarre parties. I got DNA'd from the Playboy Mansion, which was super fun. Um, You know, I snuck into a lot of play—I wasn't 21 yet. I was 19, and they didn't card, so I was finding myself in a lot of, like, hot spots, like the Viper Room was really hot. Um, I even got kicked out of— Leonardo DiCaprio's Malibu Beach House, which was a good story. Yeah. I mean, I had to work three jobs in order to make a living. And I lived in a tiny little studio apartment in West Hollywood. And I knew that the mechanism of culture here was different than where I'd come from. I knew that just by default showing up on time, I already seemed like a stellar employee. And I never really was into drugs or anything like that. So I I didn't have um, that kind of experience so much, but definitely I found myself in situations where I had to make a really clear line about what behavior I would accept in my life and what I wouldn't. So I had a friend, um, who was a waitress at Planet Hollywood and she told me, I met this girl and she says we could do massage for $250 an hour. I'm going to quit my job. And I was like, I don't know. Doesn't seem safe. You know, you know, kid thinking like it's a lot of money, but that's like what I made in a week, you know. And anyway, it turned into nude massage and turned into prostitution and turned into drug addiction. And I just watched my friend kind of get eaten alive by the city. And I remember that being a cautionary experience. Um, So I did find myself in weird, really weird situations with people who were kind of walking the edge. What was your experience um, with being an actor and and all of that? Can you talk about just kind of the process you went through and maybe some of the jobs that you had? Oh, yeah. So I had very short, dark hair. I have big green eyes and big lips and I look like Madonna and I am the most unique looking person where I come from, for sure, I thought. And then I went to my first audition here, and the room was filled with people who looked exactly like me. (laughs) I realized, oh, my God, I'm not so unique. Like, the casting was for short, dark-haired girls with big eyes, and boom, you got a room full of them ready to, to get the job, you know? So that, it was a shocker to know that I actually wasn't as unique as I thought I was. 
that's the first thing. But I did end up making a living. I went to the Joanne Barron D.W. Brown Actors Studio in Santa Monica, which is a Meisner program. And it taught me so much about um, how in life you build walls to protect yourself. And I had built so many walls that I couldn't even feel real emotions anymore without them going through a filter. So going through the Meisner program, you see how you can be more affected. And I think that that really serves me in my job right now. And I, once the floodgates were open, I was the most affected person ever. Like the pendulum swung the in, entire different direction. I became a sobbing mess. Anytime you would see me, I'd be processing some emotion. Hence my next career as a singer because I had to get it all out. Anyway, I worked on The District on CBS. I was on Days of Our Lives. I was in the very first Ford Focus commercial with uh, Rashida Jones. And I played, um, what is her name? Selma Hayek's makeup artist in a Lincoln Navigator commercial. I made a living. You know, I made a, a living. It wasn't anything extraordinary, but I, I think I needed it as a human, like for my growth. I needed to break out of the uh, academia and the routine of such intense hard work that the East Coast is known for and really become more of a bohemian. You know, I lived very hand to mouth. I think I bought one of the first Burning Man tickets. <laughs> oh, but I didn't go because I had to pay my electric bill. And so I had to sell my ticket oh, on the that. new website, Craigslist. Oh, yeah. I know. I heard of that before. <laughs> I, I would be remiss if I didn't try to circle back and ask for a little bit more details on this Leonardo DiCaprio oh, yeah. Malibu situation. So I had a friend named Charlotte who was a model, and she had a friend who was dating one of the guys in Leonardo's crew. And she called me and said, hey, Courtney, like we're having a sleepover at Leonardo's house in Malibu. Do you want to come? Here's where the weirdness get, happens. I had a neighbor in my little bungalow development who was a recovering heroin addict. And he had knocked on my door that night and asked me, could I please drive him to work in the morning? Otherwise, he didn't think he was going to be able to get there. And he was really, like, desperate. And I thought it was noble that he wanted to go to work. And I was, I felt really torn. So I decided I would just stay the night at my house drop him off at work in the morning, and then me and my girlfriend would go to Leonardo's house, which we did. We stopped at the store to buy groceries because we didn't want to show up empty-handed. And then when we got there, my friend, I guess, was at the grocery store too or something. She wasn't there. So we got there, and we didn't know anybody that was there. And we're like, oh, hey, we're Charlotte's friends. Um, we're here to hang out. And they're all like, who are you? Like, so we awkwardly were there for like 10 minutes being completely ignored. And of course, we came with this big bag of groceries. And finally, one of Leonardo's crew taps me on the shoulder and says, Leonardo would like you to leave. Um, this is not a party house. And he doesn't appreciate that you brought all this stuff over. Like you guys were going to be like sticking around. I'm like, oh, my God. I felt so misunderstood. It, like, broke my heart. Honestly, it did. I felt so misunderstood. Anyway, as we were leaving, I saw Charlotte, and I was like, hey, uh, we just got kicked out, you know? And she was like, oh, sorry. 
see you later. You know, oh. like I didn't even care. <laughs> wow. But yeah, I I mean, it was a it was when he was really famous, so I'm sure they were really protective at that time. But it still didn't feel very good, I have to admit. But we're grateful for the story now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so then next, so you you did the acting thing. I did do and, the acting. Thing. And then you you kind of segued into more music. Yep. So so talk about that a little bit. What what were you what got you into it? what you were doing and yeah my grandma was a country music singer and she would always and she was from the 40s and so she talked like this she she was very gentle when she talked and she would say you know Courtney you have a beautiful voice I think you need to go to Nashville she really wanted me to go to Nashville because I like to sing and she knew I love to sing and I was like Nashville I don't know country music it wasn't my thing it was like down tempo electronica was my thing Portishead was my thing you know so I remember one night somebody had a guitar and I started writing a song and I, I, I could feel something release in me through that expression that I wasn't getting from the actual real world of acting. Acting school is amazing, but acting, going out on auditions and having to lose jobs because you can't show up and you know, not getting it or getting really close to a break or whatever. It, all of that stuff is the real world of acting and it's much less glamorous than emoting on a stage. So for me, singing was this one space where I could deepen my voice and write my poetry and really express myself and get some of those dark fears and kind of like possessions out. I... I'm aware of the world and how heavy what we're going through right now is. And in music, I was able to go there and dance with it. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. It does. How, how long were you involved in, in music? I was a singer for like seven years. One hilarious story I have is that it was right when websites, people were having, you know, their own individual band websites was kind of a newish thing. And uh, I was packing clubs. And so I decided I was just going to not do any advertising, not invite any of my friends and see if anybody showed up. So I showed up at the club with my band. We were ready to go. No one showed up, not oh, even oh. one person. Oh. I learned my lesson about the importance of marketing. <laughs> But not even one person showed up and I had to perform to an empty room. That was also extremely humbling. Um, but I did it for seven years. I got a record deal, like an indie deal. And I had a couple of moments where it really seemed like something could pull together. I was uh, working with Anne Previn and Scott Cutler, who are famous for writing the song Torn by Natalie Imbruglia. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've been really successful songwriters in Hollywood, writing for Pink and Beyonce and whatever, and they had a production deal, and I just loved their songwriting. They came and saw me. We did interviews. They offered me the opportunity to work with them, and I was in the studio, and I put on my headset, and I was singing into the microphone, and there was this one line that I kind of ad-libbed, and Scott said, uh, Courtney, you got to come, come out here. Um, you've got to sing it exactly the way it was written. You can't deviate from the way it was written. 
And in that moment, whatever little rebel lady is inside of me <laughs> was like, why am I doing this? Am I singing for commercial success or am I singing for artistic expression? What is it worth to me? The reality is I was uncoachable. But in my moment, I didn't see that, you know? I didn't think, oh, I'm being coached by somebody who's like a rock star and I'm a rookie, you know? I thought, he's suppressing my <laughs> my artistic expression. I can't do this. And I quit. That moment, I quit. I can't do this. I'm sorry. Thank you for your time. And I left and I never turned back. Then what did you do? Then I, well, I worked at the Silver Lake Conservatory of Music for a couple of years. I was working as a uh, first-time homebuyer consultant during the boom at Brock Real Estate. And I was, you know, kind of lost a little bit. And I met my future ex-husband. And we <laughs> were at a weird Thanksgiving, which frequently Thanksgivings in Los Angeles are where people were talking about what celebrities they applied makeup to or like, I think somebody was doing Coke upstairs in the bedroom and it was just like, who are these people? And James and I looked at each other like, we got to get out of here. And so we tried to make an escape and we moved to Washington DC and I became the editor for the substance abuse and mental health services administration, disaster technical assistance center of the department of health and human services. One more time for the people in the back. <laughs> it was the uh, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration Disaster Technical Assistance Center for the Department of Health and Human Services. And it was the most awful, soul-crushing job I've ever had in my life. It had fluorescent lights, and I was um, forced to take a lunch break, even if I wasn't hungry. And at one point, my supervisor came over and said, Courtney, you're working too efficiently we need to bill more hours. And I was like, this is not the right place for me. Mandatory human resources meetings. And uh, it was just like, they treated us like children. And every one of them was an alcoholic. I mean, every single person there could get out of work and just drink the rest of the night because it was so depressing. And I got my real estate license. And I interviewed for a job and I met this extraordinary woman named Polly. And she taught me everything I know about real estate and how to operate a business from the heart. And that's what I brought back to L.A. with me when we came back to L.A. Because, you know, the fashion in, L in uh, D.C. was so hideous that I kept looking in the mirror going, who are you? Who are you? Your haircut's terrible. You know, I had my son in, in Virginia. I had a home birth, which was amazing. And then we brought our son back to L.A. And that's when I open my own company. So talk about that a little bit. What were some of the angles that you took in the very beginning of, of launching uh, a new, you know, a new venture in LA? LA is so competitive, but in some ways it's also a little, mm, how do you say, it's clogged with mediocrity. So in order to distinguish yourself, you really have to do something better than the competition. And what I was up against and coming from a PR and marketing background like I did, you know, it was like I, I really wanted to sell properties differently than what the big box brokerages that I was working for would allow me to do. 
So I went to my supervisor and I was like, I would love to put my client's logo on the sign instead of my own logo. Can we do that? And they said no. And I was like, okay, well then I'm going to figure out how to do this myself because I'm tired of asking for permission. And it was like the moment that I entitled myself to be the boss of my life, my career, my direction. That was the moment everything shifted for me. It was like I cut the chains. My hand was no longer out. Even as an actor, as a singer, all the time you're, you're begging people to pay attention to you. You need them to adore you. You need them to believe you. You're selling yourself all the time. Um, asking them to accept you and your like expression of yourself. Real estate's interesting because now those same characteristics are applied to someone else's product. So I was able to advocate for other people in a much more strong, passionate, and really strategic way than I could ever do for myself. And by default, by giving it away and giving that energy to somebody else, I ended up creating something great for myself as well. It was like the act of generosity, the giving away of that energy, that narcissism became more client service. Um, that's the thing that's made us successful. Isn't that funny? It is so funny and so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, would you be willing to talk about maybe like a specific, you know, mistake that you made and like what you, then what you had to do to fix it? Mm. In life? Or in real estate? <laughs> I mean, literally anything that kind of pops into your mind right now is, is perfect. Hmm. Mistakes I have made. Which are few and far oh, between, well, of, course. of course. No, I just need to think because I'm sure there are a million. How about, how about with real estate specifically? Like when you were getting going, is there anything oh, that you, well, like an avenue you pursued that totally didn't work and you had to, yeah. you know, <laughs> scratch and. Well, I. I made a mistake choosing a particular brokerage when I first got here. And I remember walking in. I, I had already been selling real estate for five years on the East Coast and I was successful, but not like hugely successful. I was still newish and I'd say a mid-level producer. And I remember walking into this um, presumably sexy brokerage and I looked so good. I got my hair done. I had my makeup on. I was like killing it. And I walked in and I said to the owner, okay, I am ready. Like, what, where do you think I belong? Like, is there someone here you think you can partner me with that um, would be a good fit? So I wanted to sell luxury. You know, I wanted, I wanted to step it up. And the owner was like, eh, no, you know, you should really just send postcards north of Los Feliz Boulevard. And I'm like, I guess I, I would say this. I feel like every mistake I've made has been some kind of a learning experience that has propelled me toward where I am now. And I know that sounds passe or cliche or whatever, but it's the truth. But one thing I have noticed, and I really try to avoid this in my daily life, is people underestimated me. And they always do. And that guy didn't know what he had until I left that brokerage because that was so lame. And when I went to my next brokerage, I, I got a really big client, Better Shelter, and the old brokerage was still trying to get that client, and they actually had to have a sales meeting. Why did that client go with me, a kind of a no-name, instead of with them? And what they didn't realize 
is that when I committed to that client, to Better Shelter, we committed to making big marketing moves, to doing things outside the box, unconventional in every way. And that was more thrilling creatively for that client than anything that the classic big brokerage model had to offer. So just by virtue of, again, believing in myself and doing it my way and kind of sticking to that, I ended up with the client, despite their bougie Beverly Hills office and all of the attitude and the fact that they saw me as just another warm body in a chair instead of seeing my creative potential, you know, I won. And that's the lesson I keep seeing over and over again is that you have to stop having your hand out, expecting that other people are going to give you what it is you feel you deserve. You have to put in the blood, sweat, and tears to make it your own and yourself. And if you find yourself in the thought of he did that to me or they did that to me, you have to check yourself and realize that at the end of the day, it's your voice is the only thing that you truly are entitled to. And everything else is icing on the cake. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Can you can you tell the story of how you actually got better shelter? To work with you? <laughs> well, it's kind of funny. Um, so I was working at a boutique brokerage here in L.A. And um, the broker called me and told me, hey, I hear Better Shelters breaking up with the, their current agent. You should try and get that business. What I didn't know is he called everybody in the brokerage and told them that. I thought he just called me. So I was like, oh, yeah, I'm on it, you know. And I called Steve from Better Shelter multiple times. He did not respond to any of my phone calls, but I kept calling. So I'd call once like a week for three weeks. I knew there were three or four listings that he had coming up. Finally, he agreed to meet with me at one of the listings. And I brought with me a spreadsheet of all of the properties that he had sold, what the range was, buy side versus sell side, what I estimated kind of roughly he had put into the properties. I was trying to find his margin, you know, and I said, look, I have no business here. I have no business. I have no clients. I can dedicate myself 100 percent to you. And I know that sounds like it shouldn't work, but it did. He was like, "Okay, well, my partner has a listing. So he didn't even try me at first. He said, my partner has a listing. And uh, I'd like you to talk to him about it. So. This listing was a two on a lot next to a school in Montecito Heights. And it was a flip, but it wasn't a high quality flip. I think our list price was three eighty five. Okay, for two houses on a lot. And wow. um it was uh had no no appliances in it whatsoever. It wasn't staged. And I said, Okay, I'm gonna do this. I called Brock, who I was working with, and I said, do you have any furniture I can use for staging? He goes, yeah, I think I have a room of furniture over there. I'm like, okay, great. So I moved all that furniture into the property. I staged it myself. I bought appliances from a used appliance store, and I installed the appliances. I I hired a graphic designer to create a marketing brochure. I had a catered broker's open. I treated it like it was a really very special listing, and we got an offer. Now, in D.C. at the time, appraisers would just go to the property on their own. No agent had to meet them there. So this was one, like, critical mistake I made. 
I thought that would be the same way here. So when the appraiser showed up, I he just used the Supra and went in. I didn't meet him there. The appraisal came in a hundred thousand dollars below asking. Oh, but below our our contract price. So I had to explain that to my sellers, which was awful. And I said, but I'm going to solve this. I'm going to figure this out. And it was an FHA loan. And if you don't know, with FHA loans, if you get a bad appraisal, it stays in the system for six months. So anybody who uses FHA loans has to use that appraisal that's in their system. (laughs) The reason why it was so low is because it wasn't a single family house and they didn't have any duplex comps. So they couldn't comp it with just single families. It had to be a duplex comp. And the guy just put zero effort into trying to make it work. Any hoodles. So I found a new lender. They were able to get the appraisal uh, kicked out of the system. We got a new appraiser. We sold it probably 30 days later. But the amount of work I had to put in to get that deal to hold together, Steve and um, and his partner at the time, I think both saw like how hard I was working. And he gave me then the first next listing. And from there, it was just a creative flow. You know, it just felt like, okay, we can do this differently. We can do that differently. We can, you know, we can partner with local businesses. We created the NELA business culture and we knew we had to sell homes in neighborhoods that were transforming. So we were trying to bring the entrepreneurs and the business owners together to create a community that we could then sell to our potential buyers. So I had maps in our listings with all the different little stores that are popping up. We had events at our listings. I even got NPR to come to an event to talk about the neighborhood. And, you know, I just tried to generate buzz around this transforming area. And now, you know, many articles have been written about how Northeast LA is like the hottest place to be in LA. What do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions about what you do? I think people think real estate is an easy job. Um, They think we just show up and collect the check. It's really not sales. It's management of a process. And that process is multifaceted. I have to be a, you know, psychologist, a counselor. I have to be tough sometimes. I have to be an advocate, an advisor. I have to give advice that sometimes pushes me outside my comfort zone. Like which countertop should they install? And you have to be sort of willing to accept responsibility for when you do make mistakes. I I think that people um, see us making a lot of easy money in a hot market. But the reality is I'm on call 24 hours a day and we have to fight really hard to get our deals in escrow. And then because of the buyer's psychology process, after a buyer gets into escrow in a multiple offer situation, they think they're paying top dollar for a property frequently, then they start having thoughts like their survival brain, their reptilian brain is saying like, danger, danger, you should not step outside your comfort zone. And we have to talk them off the ledge. And so a large part of my job is really just counseling. I I guess I don't think that the members of the general public understand that. Do you have moments still, I know you've, you've worked for so long in this industry and you've built such a, a wonderful culture and, and company, but um, can you talk about times where, whether now or in the past, where you wanted to give up and like what your self-talk was like to to move through that feeling? 
Um, okay, so the honest truth is I have a Achilles heel, which is there's an alternate version of me that is singing back up in a reggae band in Jamaica right now. <laughs> <laughs> so at any moment, I'm like, okay, that's it. I'm working too hard. I need to get out of here and I'm just going to move to Jamaica and do my backup singer thing. You know, so the, the, there, honestly, I don't have the give up in me. It's not my jam. If I was going to, you know, if, if all the fates had not aligned, I would probably have a bunch of kids to a bunch of different people living in a trailer park in State College, Pennsylvania right now, you know, but that's because I am who I am. Um, I can thrive in a town like Los Angeles that's always changing and growing and adapting and transforming. And I ride that creative juice from failure to failure if that's what, you know, would otherwise be a valley. It ends up for me being more like a crest. So I'm not a giver upper. That's for sure. Or it would have happened by now. I do frequently still have fantasies of unplugging from the grind and going to some bucolic place and living a pl placid, peaceful existence. Um, everyone that knows me says I'd be hardly, hardly bored and I wouldn't even know what to do with myself if I ever decided to do that. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you could travel back in time and sit down with little Courtney on, on the day that she arrived in Los Angeles, all those years ago, what would you say to her? Okay, I definitely would have told her to not believe every guy that feeds you a line. They are not all producers. They do not all want to make you famous. I had this, I applied for a job once and um, the guy owned a classical musician's agency. And he said, oh, you're new to LA? Great, let me take you out. I'll, you know, I'll show you the town. So we went to the Beverly Hills Hotel. It was the first time I'd ever seen a pink fish. It was salmon. I didn't know what that was. And I was like, whoa, there's a pink fish. I was like 20 years old, 19 <laughs> years old. And I had never seen salmon before. It was extraordinary, this moment for me. And then he asked me, did I want to see his office? Now, mind you that I had gone there for a job interview, but I was still so naive. And when I rejected his advances, he told me I would never make it in this town that I was like a waste of human life, that I was a bitch or whore or something. And I remember feeling like my innocence was broken. Like I was so naive that I thought that the things people say had meaning. And that's a double-edged sword because it means when they flatter you, you believe them. And then when they insult you, you believe them. And so for me, um, I would tell my younger self to trust her instincts, to not be fooled by predators, to affiliate yourself with really good people from the very beginning, regardless of what field you want to be successful in, to find your family and really stick with that family through your journey in L.A. My, my favorite relationships here are the ones that I've had for 20 years. And it's because we've been able to see ourselves through so many different changes. But they're the rooted ones. And the, the, there are a lot of people kind of floating around in the ether, people who come here and then, you know, come and go and come and go. And so many people are just thrive on attention. 
that it can be very distracting from your from your intuition. So I would tell myself to trust my intuition. I would also tell myself to save enough money to buy my first place. If I would have worked really hard as I was working and actually put the money I was paying toward rent toward purchasing a property, I would be a very wealthy woman right now. I, I think that that is critical. You know, we all, well, I'd say not we all, but a lot of people come to L.A. with a deficiency mindset. You come here thinking that this town's going to change your life. And for some people, that's for the positive. Some people, it's for the negative, And some people just give up and go home. But for me, if I would have come here thinking I have something to offer instead of I need you to give me permission to offer something, I would have probably seen some more success earlier on and made smarter financial decisions. So for somebody that's kind of looking for their angle right now in real estate and today's market, what, what would you tell them is just step one to do today? Call a lender. Step one is call a lender. We have a bunch of lenders. You can email me at Courtney at acme-re.com and I will give you a list of people and they will tell you what you need to do. If you're not ready to be pre-qualified right now, they'll tell you what you need to do to prepare to be pre-qualified. If it's a credit issue, they can tell you how to fix it. If it's a savings issue or a reserves issue or an earnings issue or whatever it is. The best advice I ever received was from Gretchen Pearson, who owns a brokerage in Northern California. And what she said, her mentor told her, was buy one property a year. It doesn't matter where. And I think that that's critical. I think that if you get even pre-qualified for 300000 you can look at what cities in California you can buy a property for 300000 in and buy it. The values over time will always go up and you'll have something you can leverage. You can buy in Big Bear. It's going through huge transformations. Or buy in Sacramento. Like, you can buy anywhere. Just buy. And then the same question, somebody, like, what's step one for maybe a brand new agent or an agent that has just moved to L.A.? Oh, my God. The, I, the biggest thing I see with new agents who tend to be millennials is that they think, that by getting the real estate license that suddenly they're going to really know what they're doing. And there's a certain like arrogance that comes from that. I was taught by a woman who'd been in the business for 28 years. It was very humbling. And I had to work really, really hard putting signs up and pouring down rain, scrubbing bathtubs for photo shoots. You know, I earned my stripes. And I think it's really important for new agents to find a mentor or a coach who actually is willing to invest the time, which might be two years, in them for them to understand what the job we really do is. People just want to jump in front of the camera on social media and everywhere else and, and act like they know. And the reality is this is a um, complicated and litigious business with a lot of liability and partnering up with people who have your best interests in mind, who are not your competitors, but see themselves as your teammates, who are vested in your growth, that is the most critical part of being a new real estate agent. Awesome. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, okay. We're, we're getting towards the end. Um, I have four final questions for you that okay, I ask me. everybody. All right. Where are some of your favorite spots in L.A.? 
Um, okay, well, you know, I love the Petit Hermitage rooftop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love my backyard because I look at the canyon. Um, I love 8969. Is it 8969? Hold on a second. It used to be called, I swear it used to be called 8969, but it's not. We'll include that in the show notes. Okay. Okay. Whatever. So anyway, it's that bar that's at Fairfax and Santa Monica. Okay. Do you know what I'm talking about? Fairfax and Santa Monica. That's not Harlow, is it? Yeah. Harlow is is further down, but what's over... Like Laurel 80, Hardware. 80, and it's Surrey across the Goat. street from Laurel Hardware. Delilah. And, yeah, Delilah. Delilah. Love that place. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Super wow. cool. So it used to be a club back in the day. Okay. And it was called 8969 or 6989, whatever the address is. I forget. Oh, okay. Anyways, okay. Sorry. You're Senior fine. moment. <laughs> um, I like that place. The vibe is really good. The design is really nice. Um, and I have to say, I really enjoy the beach. I I haven't taken LA up on its natural resources until this year. And this year I really spent some time in Malibu at the beach and it was great. And I'm like, wow, this is free. The water was actually warm. It was it was quite beautiful and you know, I wouldn't drink the water, but I would swim in it again. <laughs> <laughs> You're not supposed to eat yellow snow either. Anyway. Uh, okay. Noted. Thank you. Wow. Uh, okay. Next. What is something on your bucket list that you think might surprise people? Oh, I really, really want to go to Finland to the Hasklanaten Hotel. I'm not sure that's how you say it, but it's the Igloo Hotel where you can see the Northern Lights from a glass encased igloo. I want to go there so bad. And they have a Santa's village. I mean, that's on my bucket list. Faux show. Amazing. <laughs> okay. Tell me a time, like a very specific snapshot of a moment when you really felt alive and electrified. Could be any time of your life related to anything. I think the first time I sang on stage and I knew there was no turning back that was the moment I felt the most alive it was like all systems go and everything about that moment I remember I remember what I was wearing I had my head wrapped up like Erica Badu and I was wearing this like turquoise crocheted droopy drapey top and the room was packed and my band was nervous and I was nervous and I don't even know what songs I was singing. I mean, I'm sure they weren't good, but I remember belting my heart out. But that first moment when I was like, hi, my name is Courtney and here we go. You know, it was like (laughs) really alive. Yes, that was my moment. Okay, and finally, you see a lot of homes in LA you have been a part of creating so many beautiful spaces in LA but describe your dream home my dream home has views of the canyon 
not the city. It has a pool. It has enough room to breathe. It has character. It's not too new and it's not too old. It is private and it has land. And ultimately, I think the thing about LA is that it's a vignette city. So you have these moments that are just picture perfect in corners. Like taken overall, it's more like shopping at Target, like you don't know what to look at. But I think that when you take L.A. moment by moment, you really get to enjoy. And so for me, I want a house that has moments. Like the feeling when you open the door, what's that I'm looking at? Or like if I'm drinking coffee in the morning in a corner of the kitchen, what am I looking at? Like that's what I look for in a dream home, these moments. Beautiful. Well, do you have anything that you would like to share with with everyone? Anything that you're working on right now that that's exciting that you're I about? do actually. I just completed a book called Break Up With Your Rental, Woo! The Professional Woman's Guide to Building Wealth Through Real Estate. And this book is um, really important to me and very close to my heart. I, as I mentioned to you, I didn't come from a family that taught me how to manage money or how to build wealth at all, which is totally normal for where I come from. It's very blue collar. And uh, for me, wanting something different has been quite a learning curve. I wanted to close that gap for professional women. I think a lot of women are waiting till they get married to buy their first property. But in reality, people are getting married later and later in life and some not at all. And while people are throwing away their money on 401ks, they could actually be investing in properties that will make them way more return than a 401k could even dream of. I always tell people about the moment I was working at the federal government and uh, the 401k salesman came in and he was like, and there's matching funds and we can do this and you can do mid-level risk and you'll get a 5% return, which is better than a savings account. You know, with real estate, it's like you can make that sometimes in a year. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to save quarters from your paycheck. I have seen women who make $100,000 or more a year renting for 10 years waiting for Mr. Right. So my point in this book is that financial independence is sexy and that really there's no reason for us to wait. It's closing that last little piece of the patriarchal control that has been so long established in our country. I think when women no longer have to rely on anyone for their finances, we will be truly free. And let's face it, in America, money is what gives you power. And if you don't have it, you're asking people for it. You're back to square one, just like we talked about at the beginning of this conversation with your handout, sort of looking for someone to give you permission. But when you invest in real estate and you're making good returns and you can leverage your properties against other properties and you become a landlord and a homeowner, it's a different kind of freedom. You know your nest egg is there and you can take bigger risks in other parts of your life without feeling like you might have the rug pulled out from under you. It's really, really important also to express your creativity. And I think a lot of women do that through nesting and through their homes. Home for women is a space that we, that we inhabit and we want it to smell good and 
We want to have certain design elements in our homes, just generally. I'm sure there are exceptions, but um, I think having the freedom to do that when you're a homeowner is very different than just using the removable wallpaper when you're a renter. Mm -hmm. It's like it really takes your game up a notch to say, oh, I own a place. No, like, no, thank you, landlord. You're not going to displace me. You know, it gives you power. And I really want everyone to experience that. Hell yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Courtney, for taking the time to sit down with me and, and regale us with these stories about your experience. Oh, I got more if you ever need a part two. Oh, oh, I'm sure we will definitely do other parts for sure. Thank you for having me, Summer. Yes, it's a yes. pleasure. Yes, yes. That is a wrap on episode one. Thank you so much. If you're still with me, I appreciate it very much. Everything that Courtney shared about her book and Acme and everything will make available on the show notes on the website, which is thecityofangles.com. If you have any suggestions for guests on the show, or if you just have suggestions or ideas in general, I'm open to hearing what is inside your noggin. You can DM me on Instagram at the City of Angles Show or send an email to la at thecityofangles.com. If you have real estate needs, whether you're looking to buy or sell or invest, you can reach me at my personal Instagram, which is Summer Brighton, or my email at hello at summerbrighton.com. And go out and make something amazing happen for yourself today. If there's something that you've been putting off, a task, a phone call, anything at all that you've been saying, I need to do that, I need to do that, why don't you take the next five minutes and do it? And I will do the exact same, actually. And when you have the time, definitely check out some of the other episodes. I've been talking to some really, really awesome people. I have many other people coming down the pipeline. So there's a lot of opportunities for all of us to learn and grow and just plain have fun. And if you know that movie quote, I want you to message it to me because we need to be friends immediately. You were just listening to The City of Angles with Summer Brighton. <laughs>